Mac Power Users, Episode 720, the 2023 Developer Roundtable. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. We got a bunch of people hanging out on Zoom with us today. It's the week yeah. of Thanksgiving. Lots of good things going on. Yeah, we uh, so we have done this in the past. We, we call it the Mac Power Users Developer Roundtable. And we like to have some of our friends in from the development community. We talk about apps and software all year. Sometimes it's nice to have someone from the other side of the fence come in and kind of let us know what's going on, what they're thinking. And this year we have an all-star lineup. That's all I can say. Absolutely. So, uh, so let's just let's get to that. Um, uh, returning uh, to the uh, Mac Power Users Roundtable from Omni Group is Ken Case. Hi, Ken. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, um, Ken. Uh, uh, I always like joke about Ken. He was writing Mac software before when it when it was in a square box and it said next on the side because <laughs> he was he was uh, you know he was writing. Uh, toward you know the Mac development kit before they got acquired by Apple, uh, he was writing for Next, and um, so in a lot of ways, you're one of the most experienced developers on the current Mac platform. Yeah, it's been a, a fun long road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Omni Group is a well-known developer. We talked about it many times uh, over the years, and you guys make some great software for the Mac, iPad, and and uh, and uh, iPhone. Thank you. We're also joined by underscore David Smith, a uh, developer behind some great apps like Widget Smith, Pedometer Plus Plus, Sleep Plus Plus. If there's two pluses in the name, uh, David probably did it. Uh, David is also the uh, host of Under the Radar here on Relay FM and writes an excellent blog uh, over at david-smith.org. I don't know why there's not an underscore in that. You got your, your hyphens and everything all mixed up, but uh, welcome back to the show, David Smith. Thank you. No, it's great to be back. David, have you ever thought about putting three pluses on an app? I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. Oh, well, I, w- I will say that actually came up when I was doing a uh, a premium subscription in Pedometer Plus Plus, and it was whether I yeah. was going to do Pedometer Plus Plus Plus. Um, but I, I, in the end, I decided to just go with Pedometer Plus Plus Premium. Just I think that would uh, be be simpler. But I have thought about the three pluses and what it, what it would mean. Yeah, I think it might trigger the implosion of the universe. But go for it. <laughs> and also join us uh, as Malin Sunberg. You may remember Malin has been a guest on MPU already. Actually, all of these folks have at one point or another. Uh, Malin is a developer of Mercury Weather, um, timeinorbit.com, and uh, and you were on the Mac Power Users at real at um, MPU 698 not that long ago. Welcome back, Malin. Yeah, hi. Thank you. I'm, I'm so excited to be here again. Uh, it was really fun last time, so uh, this, this should be good. I guess we should just go around first to give the audience a kind of a feel for what what you fo- folks have been doing. Um, uh, and so let's just start with Malin and work back. Just tell us a little bit about your development history on the Apple platforms. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I'll start probably just with, um, I'm always like, how far back should I go? But I think overall, I, I've been working on Apple platform since pretty much the day Swift came out. Um, I was already sort of fascinated by it in the Objective-C days. Uh, and then when Swift was announced, I was like, okay, I got to jump on that. This seemed like the perfect opportunity. So 
I downloaded Xcode that day and uh, got all, all, all up and running. Um, and yeah, since then I started, worked a lot on iOS uh, in UI kits back then. And then as soon as Swift UI came out, I <laughs> pretty much jumped on that as soon as I could as well. I do like to sort of be part of the journey of like Apple developing new things. So it's, uh, yeah, I always try to sort of adopt the, the latest things. Um, and yeah, now I work on mostly in Swift UI, UI kit and app kit uh, where, where I sort of need that. Um, and yeah, I've sort of been transitioning to not just do iOS. I also do uh, Mac OS, watchOS, and yeah, of course, iPadOS. So a bit of everything uh, on all of Apple's platforms. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted you on the show, Malin, because because you are a relatively new developer. You came in with Swift UI. You know, uh, you know, Ken has been around as I was joking earlier about since Next, but yeah. Apple made this big switch to Swift UI, which was kind of a uh, a ground shift for developers. Just to clarify that, I did come in as part of Swift, not Swift UI, so a little bit okay. longer ago. So I'd say okay. it's it almost comes up to 10, uh, 10 years. Uh, it feels wow. crazy. Like I still think Swift and like that era is new, but yeah, yeah it's going to be the tenth anniversary next next year. I have Swift and Swift UI as a topic later on in the show, and I was, I was looking up because I want to have the years right, and I was like, it's been nine years since I Swift know, was introduced. Like, crazy. how is that possible? But yes, we will we will get to that journey. Believe me. And I almost feel like Swift and Swift UI is like the fourth guest of the show because it, <laughs> it just so permeates what's going on with Apple software right now. But, uh, but either way, Malin, I I um I really like you know you being coming in and like kind yeah. of joining in with this generation of the software. Um, uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about your background with the software. Sure. So I am the, I guess, right, right in the middle between, uh, between the two. So I started uh, developing for Apple platforms right when the original iPhone OS SDK was announced. So I guess that was like spring of 2008. Uh, at the time I was a web developer uh, and I didn't own an iPhone, but a couple of the people on the team I worked with at work had one and like, it was like, oh, this would be really cool. I'd be, I want to try this. It sounds really exciting. And so that was my, when, when I started being a you know, being, being an Apple developer. So because I'm coming up on about 15 years um, that I've been doing this. And it's at this point, this is my career. This is, you know, I've, uh, I've I'm a terrible web developer um, now. Uh, and so I've been developing for, you know, for Apple platforms ever since the iPhone and, you know, kind of been work, you know, done things for the iPad, for the Apple Watch uh, over the years. And it's just sort of tried all, all the different things. But, you know, my history at this point is about as old as the iPhone is. And it's been kind of, you know, a fascinating journey to come into Apple. And at that point, you know, be looking up to the many, like the, all the great Mac brands who've been making software for so long. And then, you know, it's like now it's being part of, in some ways, like the old guard of iOS developers, uh, you know, who were developing for iOS before it was even iOS. Well, and and the thing that's so interesting about you, Dave, is you are. I like to think of you as the prototypical lunchpail developer. Like you're so clever about trying new apps, figuring out what works, abandoning what doesn't work, and you're also the developer that that allows my children to have a scintilla of respect for me when I tell them, "Oh, I know the Widget Smith guy." And they're like, yeah, "Oh, sure. <laughs> well, well, maybe then you are cool," you know. But yeah, but yeah, yeah so it. That's, it, it it took a long time to get to Widget Smith, though. I think I think I at some point I counted him up, and I think I've I'd launched something like fifty six different apps uh, over the last fifteen years, um, and uh, the vast majority of those completely failed, didn't go anywhere, 
Um, but I've been fortunate enough, like by trying and failing enough times that I've been able to have some success with uh, a couple of my products, uh, which is Smith, the, the most prominent of, of which. And Ken, we, we joked earlier about your long history with the platform, but what, what was it that drew you toward, you know, uh, next and then Apple or maybe Apple, then next and Apple. I'm not <laughs> sure how far back you go. Well, so I started on the Apple II with basic and assembly. There you and, go. Um, uh, then when I went to the university, uh, I got into the Unix world, uh, as, as well as other sort of mini computers and mainframe computers, and basically these, um, large time-sharing computers and, uh, ended up working at the university of Washington for a little while as a systems programmer. And they got a lab of next station of next cubes in the first generation. Uh, they were all running next step 0.8 and, um, the folks there who received that uh, were treating them like a bunch of PCs, and that just felt wrong to me as somebody who loved the Unix side of things. And so, like, no, let's get these set up as real machines where people have their own user accounts or they NFS mount their own directories from somewhere else. Anyway, long story short, I um, ended up learning AppKit at that point to build some custom software to kind of integrate with the uh, student systems and fell in love with it. And like, all right. Uh, up to that point, I'd had this decision between, you know, I wanted all of the work that I did to reach as many people as possible or to have the biggest impact possible. And I thought the best way to do that was to be as cross-platform as possible because then the most people out there could use the software I was building. And then when I uh, fell in love with AppKit and Objective-C, I realized, okay, well, I could do the other way or I could um, uh, focus on this environment that makes me more productive. And then every line of code that I write um, you know, has more impact rather than uh, trying to just reach the most people. And then let's see what we can do about trying to help the platform succeed so it doesn't <laughs> disappear out from under its. So it was kind of a long, windy road uh, there with uh, with Next and, uh, and so on before they finally uh, found their home at Apple. But, um, but now clearly that technology has taken root and has powered a lot of things. One thing that w- when I think about y'all's collective careers is uh, ideation, coming up with ideas to uh, launch new apps, uh, David being the poster child for that, maybe in the whole ecosystem, uh, <laughs> to taking an app and adding features to it over time. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how uh, all three of you go about that, go about that process of thinking about what to bring into the world. I know some of you work independently, others of you work uh, on teams, and I know that can affect it. Uh, but let's start with you, David. How do you uh, how do you come up with your ideas? How do you judge them? You know, how do you rank them? What's that process look like for you? Sure. So I think one of the sort of benefits and curses of the way that I do my work is that I'm a like a one person independent developer. So there, there's no team, there's no kind of committee or management structure that I need to work with, and so. What that tends to mean is that I have an idea for something that I think would be cool, interesting, a problem for that I'm facing that I think other people might face and would like to solve. And I would tend to then just try and solve it. And it isn't necessarily as thought out of a process as you would need if you were trying to come up with something that you need to bring lots of other people along with for, that you need to make a good case for it, you need to kind of think it through. Most of my ideas just come from, huh, that's interesting. And then I'll try it. And it depends, you know, sort of the degree to which it holds my attention 
is in some ways the barometer I, by which I measure, is this a good idea? Like if I try something and I get bored with it and kind of throw it away within a few hours, it's like, well, that, that, that was, there was nothing there. But if I'm still interested in it, if I'm still excited in it, you know, days and weeks later, then I tend to think that it was a good idea. But uh, most of my ideas and things have come from, or at least certainly the things that have worked have been you know, solving problems that I think are interesting to myself, either technically or problems that I face in my own life that I'm you know, solving a problem for that, you know, I want my uh, Apple watch face to look a particular way. And so I make an app that lets you make super custom complications. And it's like, I'm solving that problem for myself and hoping that other people will have the same problem. Um, and it's like, that tends to work well, because if you, you know, then I understand the problem domain very well. And so the idea is kind of born out of the the problem itself. What about you, Ken? Uh, the Omni Group is a whole company of people, and I'm I'm sure that uh, you've got people working for you that also are coming w- up with ideas, or I know y'all are, are a very collaborative group. How does that work for y'all? I think um, it's similar to what David is saying, although as uh, as he points out, you maybe can't just... Um, I, it, we have to be a little more cautious because we're trying <laughs> to do this with a larger group and we're investing a lot of uh, effort in our typical products. But but we try to find some need that uh, that we have that is not being fulfilled and think about how would we build that? How would we make uh, that thing happen so that our lives get easier and hopefully some of our customers' lives get easier along the way? Uh, sometimes we're more successful at that than others. <laughs> and I think that's fine. Uh, but it's always been fun, uh, you know, whatever we're working on. If if we don't think it's uh, an interesting problem and an interesting space and, you know, beneficial, then, mm-hmm. well, there are plenty of things to do. Let's do something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember 10 years ago, you guys made a graphing app that I used all the time. I forget what it was called. Was it OmniGraph? <laughs> OmniGraph Sketcher? <laughs> yes, yes. I was brokenhearted when that shut down, but I think I was probably one of the few people that used it. Yeah, you know, I uh, as I think about, I'm getting a little ahead of our topics here, but as I think ahead towards some future platforms, there's some platforms where I think that could be pretty fun as an app to bring back. Ken, how do y'all incorporate user feedback uh, into that process? I know with tools like yours, Proactivity Tools, everyone has an opinion. Um, I'm sure you get some feedback that seems totally bonkers to the direction y'all want to go. But how do you mix that in? How how do you ensure that you're being responsive to your customer base, but also taking the products in the direction that you want to take them in? Sure. Well, I think it's always important to be listening. Um, if if you want to be doing this for uh, for a broad set of people, then you need to be talking with a broad set of people. You know, there are, there are plenty. As I mentioned before, there are plenty of things, projects out there that you could be working on. It could be working on like a customer project that's just, I'm building one thing for one customer and listen to what they say. Um, but we prefer building things that benefit a wide variety of people. And if we're going to do that, then we have to, um, I don't know if we have to do it. The way we do it, <laughs> I should say, is we put out, uh, you know, large, lots of test builds we ask for a lot of feedback we get a lot of feedback people tell us oh i like this no i don't like that um and we just try to listen to it and then um you know what people ask for is not always what they want because they don't necessarily fully know exactly what they want Hmm. but they they do know what their needs are so we try to listen to what they're talking about and try to understand the needs and then see if we can solve their problem in a way that makes sense with our vision of it and sometimes it's a fit and sometimes it's not i'm sure some people give up and like okay that app isn't for me and we actually encourage that right if 
if what we're building doesn't make sense to someone, uh, we're, we don't want to force anyone to tie them down. All right, you know, you have to use our product. That's that's doesn't make any sense. But, <laughs> Hold them hostage um, in their uh, task manager. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but often they come up, you know, people come up with great ideas. Uh, they they tell us, you know, the sorts of things we're needing, and we um, listen to that feedback and, and then try to make a better product from it. How about you, Mialin? How do you come up with your best ideas? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think it's it's similar to what Dave and Ken already mentioned. I think it's a lot about like my own interests. Uh, my it's it's uh, I'm also working in a small team, so it's me and my partner Kai. We we do pretty much everything ourselves, so we are pretty limited in like the time that we have. So we know that we want to make sure that like when we work, what we're working on is something that we want to um that we want to be users of as well because i do think as soon as you are also using the app and using the product you're making it's just you sort of get a little bit of a head start and like the re- user research and all of that and i think it's it's great to actually be able to like know the app yourself and sort of know who the user is just because you are a user yourself um so in general, we tend to like come up with things uh, and build the things that we want to have. So Orbit came out of us needing to track our time and needing to send invoices. And then Mercury was just an app, like it's a, it's a weather app. And at that point, we, we were looking for like the next, the, the, the weather app that we wanted to use. Um, and we were also looking for something that we could use uh, as sort of like a playground project during the summer, because we knew that. WWDC was around the corner. We should start thinking of something that we can use for like exploring all the new frameworks. But it was honestly something that we thought uh, we just wanted like a, a great weather app for ourselves. Um, and turned out like a lot of people end up liking that and liking that way of looking at data. Um, and yeah, we have started like we do definitely take more user feedback. Like we we get user feedback, but I do think when we decide what to focus on, we always try to think like what makes sense for us because then I feel like we have a better connection to like the problem that we're solving rather than just uh just building building something that we might not think makes sense. I think like always like being the users ourselves have been like super helpful. Um yeah. But yeah, pretty much like start start building something that we think is fun ourselves. I think that just is a great motivator. Yeah, in the in the productivity racket they talk about ladders and walls all the time they say well you know you don't want to climb to the top of the ladder and find it's leaning against the wrong wall you know that's the <laughs> thing but i feel like with app developers that is so relevant because the ladder is really long between <laughs> the time you have an idea and you ship a product and that's time you lose i mean if you if you if you come up with an app idea and at the end it's just not an app idea that anybody's interested in you can lose a lot of time, which mm-hmm. is, you know, how you pay for your shoes. And, and, uh, I, I envy all three of you. Cause I think it's daunting. The idea of like, Oh, you have to do this and you got to pick one and you, you hope it's going to work and you're not really sure sometimes. Right. And, uh, I don't think people who, who consume apps kind of appreciate the stress that must be to, to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree. Like it is daunting, especially like the scale of the project, um, has such an impact on that. I think something like when we were working on Orbit, uh, that is a bigger app and it has a backend system and a lot more components to it. And it's a thing that we think we want on more platforms. And that was definitely something we felt like we went in and spent a lot of time on up front before we could actually release it to the world. Um, 
I think like in the grand scheme of thing, I think we spent probably like four months before releasing it. It's not it's not a lot compared to many other like bigger 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 companies and bigger products. But for us, it felt like a long time. So it was pretty like quite a relief like working on Mercury, which is like a sort of more scoped app where we felt like we could build it over the summer and just release it and see what people if people like it and like release an app that we use ourselves quite quickly. Um, yeah, it was. It's a bit more of an iterative app compared to many others. This episode of MPU is made possible by One Password. We know that we live in a complex age, and all of our accounts need separate, strong passwords. But now we also have two-factor authentication and passkeys to manage. It's all good stuff in a world where security matters, but it can be complicated to manage. And that's where 1Password comes in. It is the service that David and I both use to manage our passwords and have access to them wherever we are. Because 1Password runs everywhere. It's on my phone, iPad, computer, PC, the web, everywhere I need to be. And that means that I can log into my accounts wherever I am. And with 1Password for teams and 1Password for families, I can share these logins, these secure notes, this bank account information, everything that's in there with the people most important to me in my life. At work at Relay FM, we use 1Password for Teams. We have quite a few people in there, and I can manage who has access to what. And the same thing at home. My spouse and I can share our joint account information very easily, but we also have our own personal vault. So she doesn't need to see everything I've got, and I don't need to see everything she has. And we can manage all that really simply. I absolutely love 1Password. I would be just totally stuck without it. Logins, two-factor authentication, passkeys, secure notes, banking account information, everything is safe and sound encrypted neatly in 1Password. If you want to learn more, head over to onepasswordcom MPU to learn more and sign up for a free 30-day trial. If you do sign up, you'll get 20% off. Once again, that's onepassword.com slash MPU. The link is also in the show notes. Our thanks to 1Password for their ongoing support of the show. Okay, so let's talk about Apple software quality. You know, there's a narrative in the community that Apple's let its software quality slide over the years. Um, and it's it's a it's weird because this the hardware is getting so good. I mean... We've had this Apple Silicon revolution. Uh, you know, the iPad has been kind of a punching bag lately, but the iPad hardware is amazing. Um, what are your takes on that? And I'll go ahead and, and start with David. Uh, from your vantage point, what do you think about this narrative about Apple software? I mean, I think what's interesting about that, I mean, it's a, it's, it's not a new narrative in the way that it's not like, it's one of these things where I think there's always going to be things that people can be grumpy about um, as it relates to the quality of APIs or frameworks or the system itself. And uh, it, it certainly is something that is, has a cyclical nature to it. I think that there have been times over the last 15 years where things have been felt a bit rougher, that you feel like you're working around more rough edges in the OS or in the tools um, than there have been at others. And I would say right now, if anything, I would say it feels like, I mean, you know, it's kind of like the the tide is rising in a good way right now that I think in the last couple of years, I've noticed a meaningful improvement in the tools and documentation for the tools and 
just generally things seem a bit more baked. I kind of think some of this is even also coming from Apple seems to be pulling more features out and spreading them out over the the course of a whole year, which I think can be helpful for this, that rather than trying to push everything into a September release uh, when there's new stuff, it's like sometimes that feature doesn't come until you know, uh, a couple months later, or, you know, five, six months later, it can even be. And so I think that helps tend to, I get the, the impression that things are getting out the door when they're ready uh, better. But I think it's the reality of being a developer who is very dependent on the platform in which we are developing for, that this is just inevitably going to be a thing where it, it you know, the, whether you think Apple's software quality is good depends on if the thing that you are dependent on is having a good cycle or not. And if you happen to be on a good side of that, that can be fantastic and it feels great and everything is awesome. But if you happen to be like, oh, this year the audio subsystems are having a bad, having a bad year, well, <laughs> then if you're an audio app, you're going to be, you're going to be thinking that things are rough. And it's like, I've tried, built enough apps and been tr- doing a lot of enough things to have a sense that like, It just comes in cycles. And a lot of being, I think, being a successful developer is just understanding that you just have to work around that and having a sort of a a fix it, you know, sort of being being enough creative in your solutions to like either, you know, is this a problem that's worth, either I abandon a feature or I work around it or I change what I'm doing. Um, But like rather than trying to just sort of be be stuck in that there's a problem here, it's like, what can I do around it? How can I change what I'm doing? Um, and that tends to ultimately be, ten, you know, a constructive, a pro- much more constructive process as a result. And it's interesting because, you know, f- f- to the consumer facing uh, people like me and Steven and, and a lot of our listeners, I feel like there's been a pretty dramatic improvement with Apple's, a lot of their productivity apps, notes, reminders. Uh, a lot of these apps have gotten significantly better and more feature rich and, and just more useful over the last several years. But there's a whole different story to that, and that's the developer tools, you know, and and that's like what you were talking about in your answer. And I think for a lot of us, we don't open Xcode, so we don't know whether you know you're not getting the API support you want. And in fact, Ken, could you share with it what does API mean? Because I'm sure there's folks in the audience never heard the term before. Sure. So I um, mean, the uh, it just stands for Application Programming Interface. It's the set of uh, and. and I guess, sort of the nouns and verbs that we work with in our programming languages um, when we're working with a particular platform. And so uh, the iPhone has an API, the Mac has an API, the watch has an API, the web has APIs. Um, and, yeah. uh, and they all um, have different ways of expressing things depending on what you're trying to accomplish and what the platform is like. Um, and uh, they have different levels of maturity as, they, uh, as new things come up. But I think uh, David's comments are uh, were spot on. That in general, um, some of these things will go through cycles, and you'll sometimes hit a rough patch in one particular thing, and uh, and then uh, later you you know, but something else has improved dramatically. And if I look at the overall um, quality of the development environment that I have available right now. I would not want to go back to any previous year and, and be <laughs> developing our software for Mac OS 11 or Mac OS 8 or you know any anything in between. I'd much rather be on this latest stuff that we have right now. Uh, and that's across all the platforms, not just Mac, of course. Yeah. And Ken, you've been doing this so long. You've, you've seen the pendulum shift back and forward over the years. How do you feel it's doing at this point? I guess you've answered my question. You think it's doing pretty good at this point. Yeah, I think it's doing quite well. And I'm really excited by what Apple has been doing and where they're going with all of this. It, it seems like, Malin, that like 
Apple had a lot of big structural years over the last decade, like mm-hmm. big changes, 32 to 64 bit and like the Swift UI and all this stuff. It feels to me like the checks are starting to cash. Like uh, one of the things I noticed this year was they announced a new operating system, VisionOS. We'll talk about that later. But at the same time, they released a lot of nice updates to the re- remaining platforms that all seem to kind of work. Do you think that's because of all that that work that's been happening over the last few years? Yeah, I think uh, are you are you referring to a lot of the things that are sort of coming out on the platform at the same time, like interactive widgets across macOS versus iOS, those type of things? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I think those are sort of the features that I think we can now get. I don't know how it is on Apple's implementation side, but I think as a like as a developer um, working on apps for all the platforms, I think being able to actually like it is pretty appealing, and I think it is great to see that like working, learning one framework and like learning those things and creating things for one for iOS primarily, like also means they are available on the Mac. I think that is, it, it does help with that sort of story of like unifying the, the platforms a bit more, uh, both from like a dev tool perspective, but also in terms of like what the user can get access to on all of those platforms. Um, I do think like to, back to the point of like how, how things are progressing and the, the amount of things changing. I do think in terms of like, the platform's maturity. I do think this feels like a year where like the OSs feel pretty stable. I don't I, I know that like there's been quite a few years where people are like, oh, is the software quality like how how is the software quality changing? But I do think this year feels pretty um pretty stable. There are certain things that are like isolated problems in certain apps, but I do think overall uh, I feel quite happy with it. Um but and I think it's we do notice a lot of things just happening simultaneously from Apple. Like going back to your question about like Swift UI changing, uh, or like multiple platforms changing. I think there's just so many things moving. Um, so that often means that you have to balance things as a developer uh, with like working with new frameworks changing from year to year. But I do think that's it feels exciting too that more features are becoming available everywhere, and we are getting more and more tools for making those things available. I don't know if I answered your question now. but <laughs> No, you did. Absolutely. And David, I was thinking, uh, I feel like you, I don't know if you've ever said this, but you kind of have the fail quickly philosophy about trying out these new apps and, 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 you know, throwing up these experiments with apps that you make, but Apple has changed a lot of the underlying um, programming environment with all these, this evolution. Is it easier now or harder for you? to make those quick iterations? Um, I mean, I think it definitely has gotten easier to develop. I mean, it's one of the nice things when I, when I think of, you know, what, what is an API? And I always think about it in this terms of like Lego blocks. And it's like, that's, they're the blocks that I get to use to make, uh, you know, Apple provides this a particular set of blocks every year. And they're what I get to use uh, to build whatever it is I want to build. And I think, you know, the bigger those blocks get, and there have been some technologies that Apple has introduced uh, you know, recently, like I think like SwiftUI is the largest example of this, where it, 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 rather than having to be building, um, you know, with tiny little Legos, I'm building with Duplos here. Like I can throw things together in a way that is much more straightforward and easier for me to make good progress quickly or to explore an idea enough to know if it's a good idea uh, more quickly. And I think those, 
improvements that they've made have definitely increased the velocity with which I can experiment and, and try things. And I think this year in particular, I feel like there's a lot of these things that one of the challenges with the way that, you know, Apple doesn't publish a software roadmap for the future. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it, it is, we are blind. And then every June we get, to, it's just sort of, they unveil the next section of that roadmap that they've known about for, for years, but we only get to find out, you know, year by year. And so often we find out things that in retrospect make much more sense. And there can be these awkward years where we have half of the story for why this mm-hmm. particular you know, what, like this year, we with you know the interactive widgets are this combination of like App Intense and Swift UI and Widget Kit, and they're all over the place. And now Widget, you know, Widget Kit is what powers complications on the Apple Watch, and they're on Mac OS as well. And it's one of these things where clearly there was an, a thoughtful, inten- intentional plan um, working towards that. But the sometimes I think the sometimes you can get too. You can, it's easy to get grumpy in the early years before you have the whole picture because we don't have the whole picture. Um, but in, in, you know, time and time again, Apple has shown that there is a thoughtfulness and a broadness to their planning that I will ultimately benefit from if I'm adopting things as they're coming out and understanding these things that, you know, because I've adopted all these technologies in the past, now you have these linchpin years where it brings it all together um, and can be super helpful. Kind of the other side of the coin for some of these conversations is Apple's feedback system. There's been some frustration, I think, in the community, at least from the user side, about how Apple requests and gathers comments via that program. Of course, tied into this, too, is also the fact that we have public betas now, where basically anyone kind of nerdy enough to know they exist can very easily ride the beta train all summer. And I'm curious how that has been for y'all as developers. Uh, Malin, have you had issues with the feedback program or issues with the public beta program? How does that tie into how y'all approach your work? Yeah, I, <laughs> it's a, I don't think, I haven't spoken to, like, I don't think I heard any developer who's like, the feedback program is the best way of solving this problem of giving feedback to, to Apple. It is it is like the, the system we have. And I do think it is great that we can provide feedback uh, as, as, the, as the sort of summer progresses and when there is something coming up. But I, I feel like you sort of have to... I think you have to reach out and like find problems at the right time. And then the feedback system can be working really well, right? If you are in, if it's June and a new API was added or a new feature was added to Swift UI and you report that uh, early in the summer, I definitely think there's a quite a big chance that it is being looked at. I think the thing that has been like that I heard is more frustrating is that things might be addressed and might be changed, but you might not never hear back on your feedback about that. So even if you do report it and if it is being changed eventually, you don't really know. Like it feels a little bit like avoid that you throw the information into and then things are being addressed often but you don't really know when or where or what the status is mm-hmm. um so i definitely think there could be those things could be better but i do um i do think there it, it is it depends a lot on like what you're working on and i think dave mentioned that as well like it sort of depends on like which year you're in right if you are you might be at like a really really good year where apple has focused on the features and the underlying parts that you need uh, and then I think they will be more likely to address those those problems when when they come up. Uh, but I think it depends a lot on on what you're what you're working on. David, with such a, a big app like WidgetSmith, um, I know you have a, a lot of users and you have a lot of 
people who probably are in that that beta program over the summer. How do you think about those users? And if, uh, do you think overall it's, it's a good thing that regular people can install a beta in July and see what happens? Yeah, I mean, I think broadly the public beta program has been a huge help um, for me in terms of for so many years I would, you know, the like September would be terrifying because I would be releasing software that had been run even if I'd you know, had a, a you know a test flight build or something that I could send to uh, you know some friends or colleagues or people like that. It, there is something very limiting about the test you know test pool that I had and the fact that now. You know, there are public betas that I people can run the you know run the version that will be coming out in September on a much broader way, um, and that is much is, is super helpful. Um, I, I think to me, and I think it is useful at a getting feedback about a process about you know things that are upcoming sooner in the in the cycle. I think is very useful. Um, I mean, it certainly brings with it some challenges that there will be issues where. You know, you have the awkward thing of the if the App Store version is only ever built with the you know the current public uh, builds of things, so it doesn't have the pre-release things in it. So if there's some bug that is fixed in the version that will come out in September, sometimes I have to be backporting or doing weird, awkward things to make it work on the public betas. Um, but broadly, I think it, it's been very helpful, and I think it also is. I think probably related to that is it is helpful in ultimately increasing the quality of the final releases that come out in September because they're be you know their the features in them are being tested and explored and experienced by so many more people that issues and problems are being you know caught in a much higher level when you have millions of people rather than thousands of people uh, using something one thing i know they changed i think last year i mean y'all know better than i do i'm sure but there was an issue initially where people with the public beta could leave app store reviews and so you would be kind of burned to the ground by somebody like i'm on this beta and this thing doesn't work and that's not your fault right they're on a beta you are working to catch up where apple is and i would imagine that that change was uh was more than welcome where they can no longer leave reviews yeah yeah no definitely i think that touches on an interesting problem i think I, I do really like to have, it's cool to see like once the stats come in and you see many people are already running beta software early in the summer. I think that's great. And we, we definitely noticed a lot of people on our apps are like early adopters. Um, but I do think what I struggle with sometimes is like communicating with those people on like what the expectations are. I think there, there are things that are breaking on a system level that might seem more like an app problem. I think this summer we had a lot of problems with widgets. I think, Dave, you might be familiar with this. Um, <laughs> Very familiar. <laughs> and I think many of us just as users saw those like complete blank widgets or black widgets and there was nothing rendering. And I, we got a lot of feedback early in the summer like, oh, the widget isn't working. I'm like, uh, yeah, but no widgets are working. And like, it is, it is sometimes hard to like express that sort of line for the users and know how to communicate that when when they can sort of freely install the beta and like roam around and you don't really have that two-way communication in the in that way i remember several years ago i was at wwdc and i was sitting in the state of the union address so for folks at home they apple does the big public announcement where they say this is the new os and then they have state of the union which is kind of for the developers where they get into the weeds a bit and I was sitting next to a developer friend, and he says, what the bleep? And I'm like, what's wrong? And he shows me an email. Somebody had downloaded 
the beta and it was now the app wasn't working right and they were complaining and the state of the union was like two hours after they announced the beta <laughs> and I, I had a moment there i'm like oh when you're a developer that really sucks <laughs> people do that to you <laughs> it was kind of funny though too <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, we definitely had it this year. Uh, there were some weather kit problems early on in the betas where uh, data wasn't returned. Uh, not just early in the beta, it kept on for quite some time. But um, we we were also in Cupertino, so we didn't have like a great setup to install the latest beta, like the, the, the first public beta. So we d- definitely had some people messaging us before we knew what the problems were. Hmm. So that's always, always fun. The week of WWDC... You know, you're trying to learn and absorb as much as you can, <laughs> right? And like, there's people mm-hmm. out, you know, in the world who basically WDC is over on Monday, right? They watch the keynote. Maybe if they're clever enough mm-hmm. to install a beta, they're watching the platform stay of the union. <laughs> it's like you're on the ground in Cupertino or you're at home trying to absorb all this stuff. And people come sort of like barging mm-hmm. in like the Kool-Aid man saying that something's not working. And our advice always to our listeners, and and I think most of our listeners have been around the block enough with these bays to understand, is is give you positive, useful feedback. Say, hey, I, I downloaded it. I know you're at WWDC, or maybe you know you can't fix it today, but just so you know, here's something that I experienced, and that's what the developers want. They want to to ask about help, you know, um, and and they want to get that. You know, in a way, it, what, what hurts is when you, you send a developer a note that says, well, I'm going to give you a one star because this doesn't work two hours after Apple released it, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, to build off of Malin's example, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable for somebody an hour later <laughs> to say, hey, I installed the new beta and this thing doesn't work. That's that's mm-hmm. useful information to us. Mm-hmm. We can act on it and we can get this early warning and start fixing things sooner. But um, it, it's just hard when they get frustrated by it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ken, they've got a program now called the Technical Support Incident Program. Could you talk a little bit about that and share your experience? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, they've this program's been around for uh, a few decades at least, and maybe even before um, we became Apple developers. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, before Apple bought Next, um, but basically, it's a program where a developer can pay for a certain for some tech support from Apple and. Uh, any developer who joins the program gets a few incidents for free per year. Um, we tend not to use them very much at Omni. Um, we'll occasionally like use them to draw attention to some feedback that we filed and say, okay, now I'm going to open an incident on this. Um, when that happens, um, when they, if they discover that it's their issue, um, then they always refund the incident. So it's just, yeah. um, it can be a way to kind of, uh, I guess, escalate a problem there at Apple. Um, but I, in my experience, it hasn't really, um, necessarily made them more, uh, instantly able to understand the problem than anything else. It just gets their attention on it. What do you know? And so we hear about this from the outside all the time and I'm not trying to apologize for Apple here, but, but Ken, you've been dealing with them a long time. I, I think Apple acknowledges probably that the feedback system is, uh, is, pretty uh, difficult to manage um what you know if you're if you're over in cupertino how do you explain you know the challenges they're facing with this program 
I think a lot of it just comes down to scale, right? That yeah. I don't know how anybody scales <laughs> something with the, the number of customers that Apple is dealing with and tries to incorporate that all into a system that perfectly surfaces the best feedback, uh, you know, to the attention of whoever they're trying to reach. Uh, when Apple was much smaller, when Apple bought Next, for example, uh, there were a lot fewer developers. Apple was trying to recruit developers and it will give you a free... Uh, leather jacket if you come to WWDC, all that kind of stuff. Um, that, that was a different scale, a different sort of operating mode. And I think some people maybe miss that level of attention and feedback where you knew you could have this relationship um, with Apple because there were only a few of you and only a few of them. Uh, and now Apple itself has grown up quite a bit and so has, and the customer base has grown many times more. So um, yeah, I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight of just how, difficult it is to manage something on that scale. I mean, and one of the things I always think of is like the teams at Apple aren't as big as you think they are. Like, you know, the guy or gal who's like responsible for this API and knows it inside and out and is capable of fixing a bug uh, is doing a lot. And you've got millions and millions of users. I don't know what, is it billions at this point? I don't know, but and it's like, how do you get that information to that person and also have that person do the rest of that person's job. I, I don't envy them. I, I don't know what the answer is, but um, it, it's not easy. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. To get more productive today, whether you're working on your own or in a team, go to textexpander.com MPU and sign up. With Text Expander, you get customizable and shareable snippets of text that allow your team to fly through repetitive tasks quickly by expanding the things you type regularly. Text Expander is text expansion done right. It goes to the next level. And if you're listening to the Mac Power users, you deserve next level text expansion. With Text Expander, you can use Apple scripts, the clipboard, you can insert dates. You can really create snippets that do your work for you. One of the biggest ways Text Expander has helped me is with email. For me, email is a constant struggle. I get tons of it. A lot of it needs reply but a lot of it doesn't need extensive replies. So I can use Text Expander snippets to create quick replies. In fact, with Text Expander, because I can put the tab key into the text expansion snippet, I can even trigger the snippet in the subject line. It'll fill in the subject line, hit the tab key, then fill in the email and send it off. It's just great. But I use it for all sorts of other weird stuff too. Like I create OmniFocus tasks with Text Expander. As a lawyer, I used to create contract terms with Text Expander. Heck, when we have guests on the Mac Power Users, I have a text expander snippet so that I can send them so they know everything they need to have in order to be ready to record. I have so many snippets that I've developed over the years. You can bunch them into groups. One of my favorite features is you can actually search your snippets if you can't remember the trigger phrase. I've attached it to the keyboard shortcut, Control-Option-Command-I. Anytime I know I have a snippet for something, I just that shortcut, type a word or two, and then the snippet shows up for me. Once you start using this stuff, gang, you will really love it. It's a great way to automate your Mac, iPhone, and iPad, and it's a great way to get your work done faster. Texas Manor has been a long-term sponsor of the Mac Power Users. They were the original sponsor, and we'll always appreciate them for that. You can learn more at texexpander.com slash MPU. Let's talk a little bit about the App Store. Before the iPhone App Store came along, and, and David, you, you referenced 
that 2008 announcement where the original iPhone, there was no App Store, there was no SDK. Apple had a WWC uh, sort of announcement like, hey, build web apps, and that did not go over <laughs> super well. So they, they went back, the SDK launched the next year. And here we are now, many, many years later, and the App Store is still the way to get software onto the iPhone. There are reports that sideloading could be coming where you could install software elsewhere, maybe at least in parts of the world. Uh, various regulators have begun to punch holes in Apple's payment policies. It's a, it's a very it's become a very complicated topic, and um, we, we can talk about some of the benefits and downsides of the App Store in a second. But just thinking about sideloading or external payments, if, if those were allowed on the iPhone or iPad, uh, David, is that something that you would look to support? I doubt it. I mean, it's always hard to like predict the future that it, there's, there's, I could, there's, I'm sure there's a, some world where that is something that I would want to do. But my instinct is that the benefits that something like that would provide to me would not in any way outweigh the, the complexity and the cost and the sort of overhead of trying to like just keeping up with all my customers coming from the app store is challenging is difficult is has enough challenges and, and issues with it and dealing with you know the you know app store payments did they thought of tackling additional venues for that it starts to become the kind of thing that i feel like would benefit you know the the larger the software organization the larger infrastructure that they have on their end to manage that kind of thing the more benefit you would get and so for a small indie developer like me it just i would be very circumspect about diving into something like that and i think it's much more likely that i even if i could distribute some other way that i would just stay in the app store because it affords such sort of it works well it has you know, at least I I know how it works. I understand the the limitations and the benefits to it, and it does a good job. That has you know clearly been doing well, and I you know I'm quite happy with the career I've been able to make in there. And so I wouldn't. I'm not actively looking for a way to get around it. Um, and you know, for for me, they take care of so much of the overhead that I think I would have to tackle myself that I would not be coming out ahead if I was trying to deal with those kinds of things uh, myself. The the other, you know, I'd be replacing App Store services with other services. And then now I have two problems rather than one. I'd rather just have one problem. I mean, as a business owner, just like, because I sell things on the internet too. And like, I pay a bunch of money to somebody who collects taxes for me and like manages all that stuff. And that's one of the benefits you get from the App Store. And I'm assuming you'd probably have to recreate all of that if you were going to go uh, a different route. Yeah, I would expect to. I would expect that I would have to be, like, if if I was able to distribute my apps other ways, then now I have all these other issues that, I mean, you could imagine some other company is trying to emulate and take care of all of the things that Apple is currently taking care of. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's amazing when I get these emails from Apple that are telling me that, you know, Brazil has changed some tax regulation and they're going to be changing the payout rates as a result and something is like, great. I, 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 I did not know that that had changed and I'm glad that I didn't need to know that. And that's, that's some, you know, there's some lawyer deep inside of Apple who that is their job and that is their specialty and they're making sure that everything's on the up and up, but I can just benefit from that expertise without having to really be aware of it myself. Ken, over the years, the Omni Group has had uh, different business models for different applications that y'all sell. Uh, a bunch of your titles come before the App Store. A bunch of your titles are on the Mac, where the App Store is noticeably less important. So 
with that perspective of someone who is both in and outside of the app stores, uh, how much of a workload does that add? I mean, David was just saying, you know, different solutions require different scaffolding basically within the app, within his business. You already have a lot of that. Uh, is it a lot of overhead to manage? And and if Apple did open up the iOS app store, would you, would you look at direct sales? It is a lot of overhead to manage. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not sure if we would be um, looking to manage our own store if um, if the app store had existed before we built our own, right? App. Once we'd built our own, then we'd invested a bunch of that time and energy in doing it and keeping it going is um, is somewhat reasonable. And we do have some advantages on our store, you know, things that we're able to do that are awkward to do through the app store, whether it's upgrade pricing or, um, you know, volume discounts, um, things like that, site licenses and so on. Uh, so, Yes, we have always um, on the Mac been in and out of the app store, out of the app store, and side loading on the other platforms um, seems to me a lot like, you know, maybe bringing the Mac experience over to those platforms, um, which uh, it doesn't get to the question of would we want to actually do that with our <laughs> apps? I don't think so. I, I think uh, in general we are pretty happy with what the app store lets us do there are still some limitations uh, as i noted one of the biggest i think for me or for our customers is that it's hard for people to install older versions of our app store apps uh, you know like if we uh introduce a new version of OmniGraffle and it has some uh, bug fixes for a new operating system but introduces bugs on an old operating system if you're in the app store uh, and downloading it from there the, you only have the option of getting the latest version you can't get a version that was more compatible with your older operating system, for example. Whereas somebody who comes to our website can go download it and grab that older version. And, you know, we have archives going all the way back for uh, to the beginning of, of the app's history. So uh, so people can download whatever version they might be interested in. Uh, I would love to see that kind of capability come to the App Store, but I don't know that sideloading certainly solves that equation for anybody. Like Ken, when the app store first opened up, sandboxing was like the worry of everybody. Like the Apple's going to put so many limitations on what you can do on an app sold through the app store that, that it's not going to work. Um, I haven't heard that much lately. And I don't know if that's just because people got used to it or if it's got easier. Is sandboxing less of a problem now? I think it depends on what kind of app you were writing. Um, yeah. For some people, it it definitely was a big problem. It ha- it's been a big problem and it killed off some apps, I think. Um, yeah. uh, or else they just, you know, stayed out of the app store completely. And that's for people still have that choice. Uh, for our apps, we made all of our apps sandboxed as soon as we could, even before it was required by the app store. And, you know, as soon as they had that technology available, it made sense to us. And so we, uh, we sandboxed everything we could. That said, there are some of our apps where sandboxing doesn't really make sense. Like, uh, they're not the apps we, we make money off of, but Omni Disk Sweeper, for example, um, you can you could open up a sandbox hole, I guess, that says you have whole disk access. Um, but um, but that's not very sandbox. It's not, yeah. That's it kind of the point of the app, enough. too. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, or if you're building your own web browser, which we did for many years right, with OmniWeb, um, you know, there's some things there that were rough to... Uh, to do through the app store. But, um, but in general, I, I guess it really kind of depends on what market you're trying to reach and what you're trying to do with your apps as to whether uh, sandboxing gets in the way or not. Certainly sandboxing has gotten a lot better over the years. They've added a lot more capabilities for letting you do things like rename documents that you're in. Um, 
you know, that used to be a trouble spot on our iPad apps, for example, you, you, because you, if you had a document open, you didn't have any APIs that would let you um, rename that document. You, you didn't have permission to rename it yourself. So we couldn't let the users rename it. They had to go out to like the files app or some other mm-hmm. equivalent and do that work. So for several years, both the iOS and Mac App Store have featured editorial content from Apple, uh, also some paid ads. This is where I am obligated to mention that David Sparks has been his own Mac App Store feature, talking about productivity <laughs> on the Mac App Store, which is pretty pretty cool. Um, that was a fun day. Yeah, it was. yeah, yeah. So, so, so I opened the Mac App Store, and sometimes David Sparks is looking back at, at me. Apple has done done the editorial content push. Uh, they have said to get more apps in front of uh, more people. So I want to start with that, uh, with the sort of editorial content and what those elements can do in the App Store. Uh, David, I know that Widget Smith has been fortunate enough to be featured uh, in various collections and on its own in the App Store. Could you share some of your experiences with what's, what that is like and if it can drive uh, a meaningful change in the business. Sure. So, I mean, the actual, I mean, it's, 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 really, it's one of the best emails I think you can get uh, as an app store developer is when you get and you get an email from Apple that says your app is being considered for, to be featured in the app store. Um, and like that is just, it's, it's, it, 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 I've been doing this for 15 years. It, if whenever I'm fortunate enough to get one of those emails, I, I still, you know, big smile on my face. That's makes my day. Um, and usually what they're asking for is, you know, some kind of resources, some kind of information, whether that's images or text, or it just depends on exactly what kind of feature they're, they're, they're trying to do. But, you know, there's some, there's a team of people within Apple whose job it is to identify interesting apps that are doing interesting things. And this, you know, the, the easiest way to do, to, to get on the, the, their radar to typically, typically is to be adopting new technologies that Apple is, you know, proud about of this in a particular year or feature, you know, uh, highlight features in uh, new hardware, whether it be iPhones, iPads, whatever. Um, and so if you are doing something that is, you know, both making the platform look good and doing it in a good um, way, then you, you know, you can hopefully get, get on their radar and you provide them with things and then you, you wait and you see, and, you know, some, some, so I've definitely sent things over where I was, I was considered for a feature that never happened as far as I'm aware. Um, and sometimes that's just the way it goes. Uh, but I've, you know, been fortunate enough on the other side that, um, you know, some of my apps have been, been featured in prominent ways and, I think the the impact of that, um, I mean, if there's an impact of it that just personally, that I think it is very gratifying as a developer to have you to like win an award essentially uh, from the App Store, um, and that that is not insignificant. In, in, even if it didn't you know, make any difference in terms of downloads or the business side of things, there is something just very uh, gratifying about that. But I think it, can, it certainly does draw attention to your apps and. It's not like the old early days of the App Store, like in the, you know, like very early on, like maybe the first three or four years, if you got featured by Apple, it was massive. Like you would be, you know, you would have 10 or 100 times downloads the the next day. And it was this massive, huge thing. And features lasted a whole week. And it was, you were the featured app for the entire App Store for that week, like in a way that um, you know, at the more modern App Store, everyone has their own App Store to some degree and features are changing and not everyone sees, you know, like if so, if it says this is the app of the day, that really is the app of the day for that person. It's not necessarily like the app of the day for every person who has an app, uh, who, who you know, who has an App Store. So there's, there's a customization to that. Uh, so in some ways, the direct impact of it, I think, is less than it used to be. But 
uh, it's certainly still meaningful. It's still it's certainly something that um, is very nice to get, and is is if anything is even beyond something like the downloads it drives. I think it draws attention to your apps in ways that is is helpful. That it just put, you know makes them aware of other people who might be looking for editorial things or other websites or places that then might feature your app uh, or make it aware. Uh, you know, making your app aware of to a broader audience, which is definitely, you know, for exposure is one of the harder things to find in, 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 in this business. And so anything that can do this, and certainly in a way that, you know, if Apple is recommending your app, that carries a lot of weight. The other new element in the App Store, of course, is paid ads. And there's been back and forth over the years about where Apple puts those and how uh, how aggressive maybe they are with some of the uh, some of the placement. Uh, Malin, is that something that y'all have uh, tinkered with with your applications? Um, yeah, it it has actually been some time ago now, but we did definitely tinker with it for Orbit, um, just because I think that is it is an app that is a bit more specific to certain users. Everyone is not just people aren't just browsing the app store and decide to change their time management system and invoice in a different way. Um, so we did feel like, okay, probably makes sense to be a bit more, like try to find the right, right people there. Um, and it's been, it was pretty interesting. I think as the, I think many developers found that marketing is like the daunting side of building an app, um, and actually trying to figure that part out is, it, it, it does mean that you're not working on features at that point. And I think many people often, myself included, feel like I'd rather like working on a feature is going to make the app better, but spending time on marketing is not really improving the app itself. But I do think it's it's important to also like also sort of learn a bit about that. So it's been a lot of sort of experimentation on our end. I don't think we have like figured it out. Um, but one thing I found was interesting is um, for App Store ads uh, in particular is that if you do go, you can decide to go with like keywords, but you can also decide to go with negative keywords. And that is something I don't think many people, I haven't heard of as many people exploring that side. So instead of you sort of saying that you want to show up when someone search for time tracker or for weather app, you might go for the negative keywords that you want to be excluded from. So for Orbit, for example, uh, it is a paid app. We do not have a free, uh, like a free plan at all. We have um, so, so people will have to sign up for a subscription. So we just excluded the word free or cheap from the search keywords. Um, and that was uh, something that we noticed had quite a big impact because some people might search for free time tracking app. And then if we show up, they just install the app and then they're just disappointed because it doesn't do what they just searched for. Um, so that has actually helped quite a lot for us to like reduce negative feedback where people sort of downloaded the app and then were disappointed that they had to pay. Um, yeah, so that that's that's like the the most interesting side that I found of that of that. I think one of the most important things you can do in business, no matter what you do, is repel customers that you don't want, and that's like that's giving you that benefit of those negative search terms. Yeah, Ken, when we uh, did prior years of these roundtables, you'll remember we had lots of segments talking about subscriptions because it was very controversial. <laughs> as it kind of took off years ago. But now it seems like it's not quite as controversial. Uh, your company does some subscriptions with some of your products. Uh, how is that going these days? I mean, are c consumers generally okay with it? And are you happy with the, the business model? I think 
our consumers are okay with it, but that's partially because we don't require it of any of our consumers, right? So we decided when we introduced subscriptions to our apps that we would make them completely optional and you would still have both options available. You could do uh, traditional licensing where you pay for the uh, major version up front and then there's no charge until the next major version comes out. And, and even then there's no charge. It's up to you to decide, are you going to upgrade to that version or not? And if you decide to, then you pay for it. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, with that model, <laughs> I, at least it was certainly our hope that the people wouldn't have anything to complain about. And, and it seems to have worked out that way other than when people are confused by it and they assume that because everybody else has gone subscription only, or not everybody, I know, but because so many other people have gone subscription only, that that's where we're headed to. And so occasionally we just have to reassure people that, no, that's not where we're headed. We uh, we do offer them because some people prefer not to have the upfront investment of paying for the full app outright at the start uh, when they're not really sure whether it's what they want or not. But uh, But we think that it's a better investment for our long-term customers to invest in the one-time payment, and so we uh, and we want that option to be available to people. Yeah, I we noticed something very similar with Mercury. We do for for that one. We do have we offer some things for free that you so you can use Mercury without paying. But then in terms of like reducing people being unsatisfied with subscriptions, um, we do have a lifetime plan uh, where people can just decide to. Uh, it is a it is a higher price, but they can decide to do that one-time unlock. And I do really feel like that was like a magic trick that sort of completely <laughs> unlocked people from complaining about that being a subscription. We have had very few people complaining about that. It's it's quite fascinating to see that like just providing that option has made people just feel a lot more satisfied, like just making that decision rather than being sort of forced into a subscription. Yeah, I would say with, with a lot of my projects, what I've enjoyed in the move from uh, paid upfront to subscriptions is I just personally and very much enjoy the alignment of incentives that it seems to mm. cre- create in my work where it's, it's the, the difficulty I always had with the paid upfront model or the, these, those kinds of much more kind of you get income in these big waves is, is it tends to then be difficult in terms of where you are going to put your effort and mm-hmm. it's sort of it did this thing that i found very gratifying of the move towards subscriptions uh, which i've now offer in in many of my apps is the sense that it means that i have a so that like they're paying for me to continue working on this app in a much more explicit mm-hmm. uh concrete way and that works out well for them in the sense of the app gets better and better and it works out well for me because i have a regular reliable um source of income that i can you know rely on to some degree to come in every you know every month you can kind of expect what, what you you at some point you kind of get a sense of what your churn rate is you have an understanding of kind of what you can expect your uh, income to be and so you can plan around it and it's been much for me it's been much way it's way less stressful uh, of a business to run that is heavily uh, driven by subscriptions than mm-hmm. it was back in the other days where it became super seasonal and it would have all these big spikes and valleys and some you know some some months you some months things are great and some months things are not so great and uh, it creates these weird alignments of like rather than f- having this feeling of like do i you know, should I be working towards a major update because mm-hmm. a major update will generate income? Um, and you know, should this should I hold this feature back and what goes over here? And I mean, to some degree, you still have that for like what what's behind the paywall and what isn't. Uh, but there's definitely I very much enjoy the movement towards this where it aligns my incentives with my 
you know, my, with my customers' uh, incentives. And I think at this point, I don't tend to hear a lot of negative feedback about it. I mean, I think people are always going to complain about pricing. And this, I guess, the old adage that if no one complains about your pricing, then you're char- not charging enough. Um, and so, like, in some ways, it's it's a reassurance that sometimes people complain mm-hmm. about uh, the, the cost of things. Um, but, you know, broadly, I think people as long as they feel like they're getting their money's worth, then they don't complain about the thing because they're getting their money's worth. That's like you, the, the complaint tends to be that it's overpriced or if they're not getting their money's worth, in which case it's like, well, then I'm not doing my job well enough or I'm not communicating uh, enough well well enough with you. Um, but I, I very much have enjoyed that that movement you know, t- towards it. And it has made you know, me, being an independent developer much less stressful, I would say. Well, in an app like WidgetSmith, I know you have some features that are behind a subscription. And I know in Mercury, obviously, you're having to pay for weather kit data. I know weather data in general is kind of a go-to example of an ongoing cost. Uh, David, do you find that your customers understand that? Or do you think they, when they hit that paywall screen, that they just sort of, uh, they, they may not understand all that goes into it, and they're, they're either okay with or not, and is it up to you to educate them like, like, how far do you educate them when it comes to they, this feature has ongoing expense, so I need to charge for it, and this other one doesn't? Sure. And I, I mean, it's always one of the tricky parts about software where, like, the, the marginal cost is low. Like, I can make one, one, make one version of WidgetSmith, and it you know, takes a tremendous amount of time, but making a second one takes no time at all. I can just infinitely copy it, and, and that's, that's great. Um, and I think I've it's changed the way I used to think about this, where I used to emphasize in my marketing for paywall features, the like ongoing costs and, and sort of like trying to feel like I needed to educate them to why they're paying. Whereas I think increasingly I have the perspective. It's like, ultimately they're paying me and I am the ongoing cost and my time, my energy, my effort, my intellect, whatever, that is what they're paying for. Um, and while in some ways it's easy to like point the finger to someone else and say like, oh, I have to pay this other person for this data. So you, I need to make this money. It's like, well, yes, that's, that's true to some degree, but I think I was in some ways selling myself short by taking that slightly apologetic perspective. Um, and ultimately I think it's simpler and more straightforward to just be upfront. It's like this pays for the ongoing maintenance of this app and these features. And sometimes that's because it cost me money but you know it's like my time is valuable too and my effort and uh experience and so i'm selling the, the that t- uh, in a much more concrete way and i think that has been helpful from the way that i market things uh, and i you know broadly it seems to be fairly well understood that i think customers sort of eventually understand it's like as long as they're seeing a return to that that it's not like they're paying for a subscription and then nothing ever changes and the app is, is derelict and kind of not going anywhere um, then I think as long as you're actively, you know, actively being maintained and being a subscriber has having more and more value over time, then it, it seems to be fairly well received in my experience. This episode of MPU is made possible by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. With Squarespace, you can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, services, and even content because with Squarespace, you have everything you need all in one place. Let's talk a little bit about that online store. Whether you have physical or digital products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online and your customers get flexible payment options. 
you can make your checkout seamless for customers with simple and powerful payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, and Apple Pay, and offer customers the option to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and ClearPay. Very often when you have an online store, you have a lot of assets to manage, a bunch of photos, maybe some video. Well, with Squarespace's new asset library, you can upload, organize, and access all of your content from one place. There's no more scrambling to find the right content. You can manage all your files from one central hub and use them across Squarespace. I love building a top Squarespace because all these tools are built in. You're not going around bolting a bunch of stuff together. It all comes in one great package. And you can check out that package with a free trial at squarespace.com MPU. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com MPU and use the code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain name. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU when you decide to sign up to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. Our thanks to Squarespace for the support of Mac Power users and Relay FM. Okay, so we have been dancing around the topic of Swift and Swift UI since the beginning of the episode. Um, it really is a, a big change and uh, it's the new thing for Apple for software developers. Um, I didn't realize until you guys pointed out earlier, it's been nine years since they announced Swift. I, I'm still a little surprised about it. I had to go check Steven's math, but there we go. Um, uh, Malin, you want to start out, tell us just, you know, briefly for people who are not programmers and developers, what's Swift and Swift UI and, and why do they matter? Yeah. So, um, Swift is, uh, basically the language that, or it is the language that we're using to, create the app and to tell the uh, to tell the compiler what to what to do uh, so swift re- swift sort of became the successor of objective c uh, objective c was uh, something that came from i think it was started like during the next days uh during the next step right a little bit right, before Ken? yeah even before <laughs> yeah Bad yeah blocks. yeah um, yeah, so Swift came out um, in 2014, and it was sort of meant to be like this new, a bit more modern, modern, modern language that was, I think, very appealing to many people because it was very, it, it felt a bit like it reads really well. Like especially in those early days, uh, there wasn't much complexity to the language. It was a pretty readable, sort of almost like a pseudo language. Um, you. I think a lot of a lot of other programming like, like Objective C, it has a lot of sort of uh, curly brackets and a lot of uh, semicolons and those things. It can look a little bit sort of intimidating. Uh, I did end up learning Objective C after learning Swift, so I think it's it's fine. Like both languages work really really well, uh, but I do think Swift was very much like a user friendly sort of start to the platform. Um, and then um, with Swift, you can. Um, you can use Swift both for writing iOS apps, macOS apps, and all of Apple Platform's app, but you can also use it for things like server-side Swift and backend development. So it has a bit more flexibility than Objective-C has. Um, and then, yeah, Swift UI is more on it's on the framework side. So we use Swift uh, to write to go, uh, as a language, but then Swift UI is sort of the SDK and the framework that we use um, that provides us with components similar to what UIKit uh, UI kit does or app kit does. Ken, you guys really uh, were the canary in the coal mine with Swift UI and OmniFocus 4 that you're you're currently working on. You 
this is one of the most powerful apps on on these devices, and you guys made a decision to go all in with it. Uh, how's it going, and what's your experience with Swift and Swift UI? Sure. Well, we um, we were excited as soon as we learned about Swift UI. Of course, the idea yeah. that instead of building OmniFocus uh, separately for uh, the Mac platform versus the iPad and iPhone platforms that we could build at once and, uh, or at least share a lot more of the components. It's not fully building at once because the, uh, the devices are different. Their constraints are different, but, um, uh, so we jumped on it right away. That was very early. <laughs> we ran into issues and that was okay. Uh, we, you know, we gave Apple feedback about the issues that we were running into. We, um, they improved things and we, um, jumped on that, those improvements and, uh, found new issues and and so on. So it's taken a few years, of course, of iterating on this. But uh, but so in some sense, when you say that we were you know some of the earliest to jump on that, I suppose that might be true in terms of how soon we jumped on it, not necessarily how soon we shipped something just based on it. But I think what we try, what we are doing in OmniFocus for is maybe one of the more advanced things that people have tried to do with just Swift UI, and I'm really pleased with how it's turning out. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the thing, right? OmniFocus to me is like a, a, a very advanced application. And a lot of people made simpler apps in it, and you guys have built this advanced app. Uh, and the the cost to you was it's going to take longer, and you work with Apple to kind of sort out Swift. But what what is the payoff for you as a developer now that you've, you know, you're you're getting close to finishing this? Um, what's the benefit to to Omni Group? Sure. Well, the payoff in the end is that now uh, a lot of the work that we're doing, we do only, as we hoped, we only have to do once and it carries across platforms. We do have to debug it sometimes more than once, but yeah. um, but the initial implementation, we can share a lot more of the code. So things like our view options, our inspectors, our settings, our, uh, you know, almost all of the uh, iPhone and iPad apps have been completely rewritten in SwiftUI. That made it really easy for us then to do a watchOS app that was a new SwiftUI implementation um, and uh, uh, new platforms coming that we will talk about later, I think. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting thing with SwiftUI. You can sort of take it to the level that you're comfortable with. You can decide to rewrite an app or to make your whole app sort of a, a new code base and write it from scratch in SwiftUI. But you can also sort of bring in those leaves. And I think um, you, you can basically isolate certain components and make like one part of the view reusable and then like um, use sort of that as a component rather than like rewriting everything. And I think that's quite nice that you can sort of mix and match. Um, I, I definitely did the, like I did something similar where, where like we decided that we want to just only use Swift UI on like in the first year because we thought that is the best way of like actually learning the framework, learning the limitations of the framework and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And um, I think it is definitely sort of playing it on hard mode because there's <laughs> some things that Swift UI just is not as capable of as uh, UIKit and AppKit, um, but I I think I think that's always like fascinating with the language uh, with the framework where you pe- when you pick it up that you can sort of mix and match like that. And I sort of been pulling back a bit, and now I I use it more like one of the tools that I have. And I sort of um, especially on macOS, I sometimes find that like AppKit is good as a lot of things, and UIKit uh, Swift UI is good at a lot of things. So I do think on macOS like mixing and matching. Um, is is also quite like very possible, which uh, I do think I do think that's nice that you can like look at the project and decide what you want to do on each project. 
do you see that mix changing over time? Like in, in 10 years, do you think you'll still be doing both or will you just be on Swift UI at that point? I think I think it's gonna be replaced. I don't think AppKit is just gonna I, I don't think AppKit will be gone in 10 years. Like that's that sounds that feels weird. That feels harsh. Uh I do think I get the impression that like every year Apple is adding more and more things that you can do directly in Swift UI. But if you look at it, AppKit and UIKit, it's been taken like tens of years to develop those frameworks in the first place. I think it's going to take quite some time before Swift UI can replace all of that. So I, I do think it's it's quite healthy to be able to like combine them in this at this stage. And I don't know whether it's obvious, but uh, Swift UI really is based on uh, on AppKit on the map, mm-hmm. right? Like the under, underneath all of it is AppKit and Switch mm-hmm. UI is just kind of uh, guiding it. And similarly on iOS, on the iPad or iPhone or Vision OS, it's built on top of UIKit. And so... Yeah, yeah. But we are we are starting to see some more things becoming sort of first party Swift UI, like for example, Swift Charts um, is more of a sort of nat- like Swift UI direct component. Truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. David, uh, one of the big promises of Swift UI is that it makes cross-platform easier. Ken's kind of talked about that. What's been your experience with that? Uh, have you have you dove into the pool yet, or are you just dipping your toes at this point? Well, I'm I, I'm like very all in on Swift UI. So uh, the only anything new that I make is complete 100% Swift UI. And I recently finished migrating uh, Pedometer Plus Plus complete. Like I did a complete rebuild from Objective C into Swift UI. Uh, and so did both into Swift and Swift UI, and I mean I'm very all in on it. I think it is uh, it, it it has been so helpful, and it just it jives with the way that I think and the way that I work, and I'm able to be super productive in it. And like the place that I see the cross platform stuff uh, be be really super beneficial is for me is uh, for the iPhone and Apple Watch apps can share lots of components, uh, and it's one of these things where it. I, sometimes I think thinking of cross-platform as, you know, you write one thing and it runs in the same thing runs in multiple places. Um, and I don't think that's ever particularly turned out well or, or been good. And if you're using SwiftUI in that way, uh, I think you're missing a lot of the sort of ultimately the benefit is that you can share, you know, you, you in, if I go back to my Lego analogy, it's like I, I can take a block that I was using here and I can use it in this other place that rather than having to make a whole other version of that. And so, you know, like in an app I was update I was just working on, I have a, a mapping component that I made for the iPhone. And it's like, I can take that exact same mapping component and then adapt it, you know, adjust it, and then put it inside of something that runs on the Apple Watch. So you can have a, you know, a map on your Apple Watch and it's built using the same thing, but the wrappers around it and the way that I use it is different in each of those places. But the degree of reuse is massive compared to the older days where if I had a UI kit app and a watch kit app, they would share only the very fundamental, you know, building blocks. Those basic bricks at the very bottom of the of the house I was building could be the same, but all the the other stuff would have to be different. And I think with the power of Swift UI is that I can move way up into the number of things that can be shared between them. And if you do it the right, if you if you're thoughtful about the way you do that, it means that you can have this large amount of reuse. And then if you you know are doing it right, you, each platform will feel good in terms of you know a good watch app is different than a good iphone app um and so you can make it feel like a native citizen in in both places but you're saving yourself a tremendous amount of time and effort and you know just getting a lot of 
you know, sort of debugging space where if you have a component that works well, there's a good or much better chance that it's going to work well, um, you know, in, in, in new places as you move it there. Yeah, I think that that's a very important distinction with like Swift UI technically being like cross-platform um, versus other cross-platform things like React Native. I think um, it's the expectation is with something like React Native. I think is often it often doesn't it doesn't work that way, but it often feels like you should be able to write it once and everything will just look and feel great. Uh, that is not really the like in my experience that hasn't been what happens with React Native, and often you need to. Like make it native. You should treat the platforms in a different way. And I think that's the cool thing with SwiftUI is that it is a cross-platform framework that you can use it. You can learn, like you can learn the one framework, but then you I think it's very important for people to be aware that like just because you build it for iOS, it's not gonna look amazing on the Mac. Like you have to think of the Mac as an independent platform and figure out like how the how do these components work and how should it look and behave uh, on there. And the good thing with SwiftUI is that you can combine it like like you have your Lego blocks there, but then you also have your like Mac OS components and you can combine those two. Whilst with other cross-platform frameworks, that's not always as easy. Can I just say that the fact that you guys keep calling them Lego and not Legos, you're saving me so much email. Because every time <laughs> it comes up on the show and someone says Legos, I get an email from somewhere, <laughs> somewhere telling me that I got it wrong. <laughs> There's also this third way in the form of Mac Catalyst, where a developer can take an iPad app and add desktop features to it, like menu bars and uh, some toolbar stuff. And this has come a pretty good ways. I think the first swing of it, swing of it by Apple was not amazing, but it does kind of live in this in-betweeny land, right? Where you can take an existing app and bring it to the Mac. And it does work on both Apple Silicon and Intel machines, which is nice. Uh, Malin, is this something that y'all have looked at? Because I know that you're on the Mac as well as the iPhone mm-hmm. and iPad. Um, we have not jumped on the Catalyst train. I think I just, I, I uh, yeah, I'd really like to control, like to be able to control exactly like how how things feel and fit and that's why I really again like I do like Swift UI in that way that like it provides a little bit of that sort of compatibility I can run it on the Mac but then I can make things it's it's more flexible in me being able to adopt things that are Mac OS specific whereas Catalyst always felt a bit more constrained to me um, so I, I rather rather want to have sort of as much flexibility as I can um, so I always gone with like writing an actual like separate Mac app rather than going with the Catalyst train. My impression has always been that Catalyst was kind of the short-term answer and Swift UI was the long-term answer. Am I, you guys think I'm wrong? <laughs> this is interesting. I, I think because Catalyst was something that was sort of pre-announced, I think in 2018. Um, and then at that year, Apple had already shown, I think the stock app and Apple News, there were some things that Apple had and they were like, this is what you will be able to do. And they sort of pre-announced that at WWDC. Um, And I think many of us were sort of expecting Catalyst to be the big thing in 2019. But then sort of SwiftUI came from nowhere. Um, So it was it was pretty surprising, and I think many people were sort of uncertain, like, what is cat like where do we use Catalyst? Where do we use SwiftUI? Um, But now Apple has been pretty expensive explicitly saying that like the way of building apps now is with Swift UI. Uh, so I think Catalyst has like 
a space. I think if you want to make the app available, uh, you can do that with Catalyst. But if you want to have something that, uh, like if you're starting to build something new, I get the impression that Apple prefers, uh, Apple sort of want to push you towards using Swift UI rather. Yeah, I think of uh, Catalyst a bit like I think of Electron apps, where they don't quite feel native to me on the Mac. <laughs> they're certainly, um, they're maybe not that bad. And there's certainly apps I use every day that are based around that, and they wouldn't exist on the Mac if uh, if the developers had had to start from scratch instead of just being able to port their UIKit code over. Uh, you know, things like Ivory, I think, are written in Catalyst, and I think that's great that we have the option available. But it's not. Um, it's not something that I would choose if I were really trying to focus on the Mac in the first place. I think one interesting thing that like both Catalyst and SwiftUI did was that I like being in the community. I think I have not heard this many developers even considering the Mac as a developer platform before. Like it feels like at this point we have more, so many more people who are at least considering to make an app for the Mac, which I don't think we had before. Those two. I mean, it's it, it's unfortunate, but I think most people did default into going to iOS. But I think more people see sort of the Mac as like an intriguing platform with all the tooling we have now. Yeah, and and the advantage is with Swift UI and Catalyst now it, that that on ramp is so much lower, right? To to get your app over to the Mac, um, I I do quite you know as a long term Mac user, my concern with that is that developers that have not written for the Mac, you know, kind of understand what makes a good Mac app. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the, how that information gets transmitted, but, but I do like the fact that there's more apps coming to the Mac. I agree. I think like coming from iOS and then starting to build a Mac app, it, you, I sort of naively thought, Hey, I use a Mac all the time. I know how to interact with a Mac app. I know how it should work, but they're just a Mac app to me feels a lot more complex than an iOS app. I think that way that the different expectations people have in how to like interact with an app, let's say you want to, if you go to sort of finders, uh, Finder as an example, if you want to open something in Finder, there are so many ways of doing that. You can double click it, you can right click, you can use the keyboard. There's just so many interact- ways of interacting. And if one of those isn't working, people feel like something is broken. Whereas on iOS, there's usually sort of, apart from like iPad now when you're starting to get the keyboard, but in general, there's like a pretty limited way of like how people expect an app to behave when they interact with it. So I I think that was a, sort of like a learning curve from a design perspective for me. Um, and I do hope that as part of sort of the move to SwiftUI, I don't want those sort of interactive models to be lost. Uh, I think an example, another example of that is like on, on iOS, if you browse things in UI kit, you get the ability for people to tap on the navigation bar twice to pop to the late, like to the top view. Uh, so if you have an iOS app, uh, you can basically tap the nav bar and then you go to like the first screen in that view. That is something you get pretty seamlessly from UI kit, but you don't get it for free in Swift UI. It's a lot more work to add that. And I I hope that people sort of are still aware of those sort of behaviors that people expect from an app uh, and put that sort of extra effort into actually making that available in Swift UI, even if it's something that we don't get for free. Uh, I think that sort of goes across all the platforms. I I also really don't want those sort of things to be lost as part of this movement over to a different framework. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Tailscale. 
Sign up for your free plan with three users and 100 devices. Just go to tailscale.com slash MPU. Human-scale teams build trusted networks by securely connecting devices with Tailscale. With Tailscale, you can connect to Home Assistant to check on your place while away. You can also stream movies, shows, and music anywhere on your network-detached storage box using Plex or Jellyfin. Plus, you can access a pie hole from anywhere and secure your connection when on a Wi-Fi you don't totally trust. And you can now sign into Tailscale using your Apple ID. So if you prefer having your credentials managed by Apple in the cloud, this option is for you. Just sign into Tailscale with your Apple ID or Mac or iPhone using Touch ID or Face ID for a super fast sign-in. Plus, you can also use a passkey to authenticate your Tailscale account a new feature you may remember seeing at WWDC. Once connected, you can use TailDrop to move files between your MacBook, iPhone, iPad, Linux VMs, Docker containers, Stream Deck, and even Windows boxes. If you're looking to share your work more widely, TailScale Funnel makes it easier than ever to share your local development over the internet for collaboration, testing, and experimentation. Using TailScale Funnel, you can receive a webhook from GitHub, share a local service with your coworker, or even host a personal blog or status page on your own computer. Funnel is a secure way to expose your development environment at a stable URL over the internet, complete with auto-provision TLS certificates. Use it from the command line or the new VS Code extension. With a few keystrokes, you can securely expose a local port to the internet right from the IDE. Tailscale has clients for macOS and iOS, Windows, Linux, and Android, the free plan includes three users and 100 devices. Head to tailscale.com MPU to build your team's trusted network today. That's tailscale, T-A-I-L-S-C-A-L-E dot com slash MPU. And if you're interested in working at Tailscale, they're currently hiring a Mac OS engineer. You can navigate to their careers page for more. And our thanks to Tailscale for their support of the Mac Power users. Apple has said that the Vision Pro headset and associated software were launched early in 2024. Not quite sure what that means just yet, but uh, we saw our first look at this at WBDC. Apple has then had a bunch of stuff for developers uh, out and about in the world about this, which we'll touch on. But I wanted to start kind of where we left off in the previous section. Um, there is an SDK for developers to work on Vision OS apps that will be sort of native Vision OS apps that take on the look and feel of the OS and some of the uh, controls and, and other things will be there for you. But the Vision Pro will also be able to run, I put in quotes, just run iPad apps as well. I don't know how big of a success that's been on the Apple Silicon Mac, right? So you as a developer don't have to do anything to bring an Apple Silicon iPhone or iPad app to the Mac, you can just allow it to be listed in the App Store, but then Catalyst is there for you if you want to go further, and SwiftUI is there for you if you want to build a full-blown Mac app. Um, when thinking about the Vision Pro, it seems to me like that hierarchy will still be there. And I'm, I'm curious what y'all think about an app that has gone through the process to be Vision OS ready, and those that will just kind of be shoveled over from the iPhone and iPad and how users may experience those and think about those differently. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I think broadly, it is a, I think it was the right choice for Apple to 
make iPad, you know, I you know, iOS apps run on, on the Vision Pro, um, even if it's not as robust of an experience as certainly you will get if you take the time to build the app specifically for Vision Pro. That, you know, there are things that I can do as a developer that will make the app feel and look and interact better than I would if I was just sort of taking something and copying it over. Um, but I think especially on something like Vision Pro where it feels somewhat of an unanswered question for where the true utility of this device is going to be, how people are going to use it, what context is it going to be appropriate to use in. I think it's helpful for just like the user base of this new device to understand that question by having access to a wide variety of software to be able to try a variety of different things. And I suspect there are going to be a number of developers who check the box that says this app should be available uh, on Vision Pro. You know, their iPad app shows up there and it turns out it's very successful and it's very popular. Like lots of people use it. And then they will at that point be starting this process of going and refining the app and making it better and work better on that platform. Uh, And in some ways, the market has proved itself for that. And if they, if Apple didn't do this, if it was something that you had to completely, you know, adopt the app from, build it from the ground up to do that, I think there would be much fewer apps that would would, would be there on that that, at the start. And I think it's a good thing that 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 it's there, but necessarily those apps aren't going to be as good. Uh, And so there's always going to be a tension there that I'm sure Apple would love it if every developer would you know, have dropped everything this, you know, since June and been working on making an awesome, amazing Vision OS app, uh, or at least the Vision OS team uh, would, would have loved that. Maybe the iOS team or the iPad OS team or the Mac OS team wouldn't have been as happy. But uh, like, that is just not the reality, I don't think. And I think so it works well. And this is certainly something that Apple benefits from in the way that they've, because they have so much more cross-platform technologies uh, at their disposal now, that I think there's going to be en- enough apps on day one of this new platform that will allow people to kind of find those actual sort of the killer apps, the magical moments, places where this this device could be super compelling and help define what that is. Because I'm not sure yet if Apple even really knows what that's going to be. I think I get an impression that they've, they're confident they've made something special and they've made something awesome that has a lot of potential. But finding where, the, where that potential is best going to be um, is going to take time and it's going to take experience with, you know, a larger group of people than the, t- the small groups inside of Apple who have actually experienced the device and who have actually played with it and have a sense of it, what it's like in their life. Um, and so I think that in that sense, it'll be an interesting process by which, you know, lots of apps will be tried. And then the ones where it really hits, the ones where it's really useful will then be able to be refined and improved and, and made super awesome uh, to fit in well on the platform. You know, it's not every day that Apple has a new platform. And for developers, it gives you a whole new uh, bucket of Lego, for uh, to use David's term. Um, so, Ken, have you been playing with the new Lego? Uh, how's it going? Yeah, we've been playing with it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and it's pretty exciting. I think, uh, I, mean, I think David's right. It, it's we're looking here at bootstrapping a whole new platform ecosystem, and it helps to have uh, a wider variety of things available for it. And of course, in a simulator, we don't have all of that. So we're kind of playing with a simulation uh, in a tiny flat screen on our monitor of an environment that, uh, you know, part of the the pull, for me at least, is 
that we get to uh, go beyond the constraints of these tiny of these screens and have uh, you know this very large canvas to work with rather than just a small uh, screen. But but that said, yeah, it's exciting to kind of see what Apple has already done, uh, the work that they've put into thinking about how the uh, these applications will interact with each other. It's very different from previous uh, experiences that I've seen with VR AR where they were often focused on one app at a time or something and not necessarily interacting with each other. That Here we're looking at an actual productivity platform. And so uh, I can't wait to um, to try it out for real and uh, and see what it's like to go beyond these screens. So Ken, you started with Apple II and you've seen all of the platform migrations over the years. What's your gut say about this new one? Is it, are consumers going to dig it? You think it's going to, going to take off? My gut says it's going to be a while first that it's, you know, it's, it's actually no more expensive than the Apple II was, but um, that said, it's still, uh, people think of it as expensive and they're not going to jump on it right away. And the software won't be there right away. Although again, I think they'll have a lot more software than the Apple II did, um, or the Mac at launch. Um, I think it partially depends on what developers decide to do, what they build for it, right? Whether yeah. the uh, use cases and applications that people find for the Vision Pro uh, make it feel like it's a compelling thing that's worth continuing. But I, th- I do think this is the direction of the future. I don't see in 20 years being limited by um, screens that have to be placed in, on desks or held in your hands or whatever when... I mean, if you take for an account inflation, actually the Apple II is a lot more money than this. But <laughs> right. just with consumer expectations now, I feel like this product is going to be looked at by a lot of people. And maybe Apple II is looking at this as an enterprise device, uh, at least in the initial re- uh, release. And I wonder if that affects software developers' decisions, whether or not to, to, to jump on now or to wait until they've got a more consumer price-friendly product. Right. It's interesting that they decided to lead out with a uh, a product that they call the Pro, right? Right at the, out the gate. Yeah. We've seen Apple uh, really, I think, work hard at getting developers uh, to adopt Vision OS. Uh, they're doing uh, a couple of things. They're doing development labs uh, in a bunch of cities, Cupertino, London, New York City, Shanghai, and more. Also doing something called compatibility evaluations where you can have your app evaluated directly on Vision Pro hardware by somebody at Apple. And there's also the developer kit program, which seems super secretive. Um, But overall, kind of zooming out a little bit, Apple has, I think over the last few years, worked to have more touch points with developers than just WBDC or just the feedback system. And I'm curious if you feel like those attempts have been successful. Um, and let's start with you. Have you had experience with some of these these labs or meetings or uh, more generally, do you think Apple is, is doing a good job here? Yeah, I think I think in addition to the to developer labs and the compatibility updates, like in line with that, they also have had a lot more sort of ongoing sessions um, after WWDC. So they actually have like, um, sort of, I think they call them like meet the expert type of sessions where you can talk to people from, or you can you can go sort of to like sessions where they talk about marketing or talk about like different specific uh, frameworks. And it's sort of like an ongoing thing uh, throughout the year. And I think it's been 
really cool to see that, um, especially last year. I think they had quite a lot of things related to. Um, they had some sessions related to Swift UI later on, sort of after September. And I think that was pretty cool because you could have sort of like all the summer to explore the frameworks and work with the frameworks yourself and then sort of go to those sessions to ask questions and get a bit more details about things. Um, and I think it's quite a nice cadence that like you get some time to experiment with things and then you can go to, then you get a bit more uh, sort of another touch point throughout the year. And I think a lot of this has sort of, I can imagine WWDC going online during during the pandemic has helped for them to be able to have this sort of different type of format where you can join things online no matter where you are uh, throughout the year. And yeah, I, I definitely feel like Apple is sort of doing a shift in like how they're communicating with with developers and that it is an ongoing conversation throughout the whole year rather than, than it being sort of just at one event uh, during the summer. So I, I'm quite happy with that. I think it's, it's very cool that they are more engaged and they are really sort of... Um, Going back to like the Vision Pro coming out, I think it is very cool to see that they are actually like encouraging developers and like giving them different guidelines, giving them different directions of what they how they can work with this device. Um, they also provided a lot of design resources early on um, where you can just use that to think about like how your app should work. And um, yeah, I think that is uh, a yeah, like a really big improvement in the last few years. I think it's great. Are you guys excited about it as users as well as developers? Such a new platform, right? It's like it's it's uh, you never know, and I don't. I'm excited to try it, and I hope I like it. But who knows? Like it's such a new and different experience to to have that. It's. I think it, I always think this is one of those one of the benefits of being a developer is that I don't have to sort of anguish about whether or not I'll get one because it's like <laughs> I need to get one for my work. Yeah, uh, and I yeah. can sort of sort of justify it in a very you know honest and specific way to say it's like well I'm gonna go try, I'm gonna gonna try one I'm gonna get one you know in a way that mm. um, if I were not a Apple platforms developer that may be a more complicated question but it's like I'll try it and I look forward to you know I think en- enough people at Apple whose opinions I value seem super excited about it in such a way that makes me super excited about it. Um, and so I think it'll, we'll have to wait and see exactly how how amazing it is, but uh, I have high hopes for it as a result. Yeah, and I think the, the fact that you're developers and you can justify one, I think that applies to podcasters too. Would you agree? <laughs> I mean, I want to get this on the record. Uh, I, I want to go around really... I want to go around really quick and just for each one of you, tell me the one thing you want to do with one of these Vision OS or Vision Pro headsets once you strap one on. Uh, so, David, uh, why don't you go first? What's the one thing you'd like it to do for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I look forward to doing is writing uh, blog posts in a virtual environment. That I think that I, there's something about the thought of like being able to be writing blog posts while I'm like up on Mount Hood. Um, or on the moon, or whatever it is that I just find uh, in very, very intriguing and tantalizing, uh, and just sort of that concept of having more contextual computing where I can, oh, I'm going to go write. Let me go to Mount Hood, uh, and I can do that in a way that uh, is, you know, I'm still sitting at my desk. I'm still here doing that thing, but I can potentially shift my mindset and my context as a result. Well, I'll just say that answer pushed all of my buttons, but um, <laughs> I am 100% with you, uh, Ken. What about you? Well, I guess I already alluded to the fact that I'm just looking forward to uh, this large, large canvas of being able to have 
large windows, put them wherever you want. I've always liked having a large screen available for my Mac, my desktop Mac, um, or multiple screens. Um, this is much better than uh, than that. Yeah, what about you, Malin? Um, yeah, I think I agree with Ken. Like the sort of infinite canvas, just being able to place things around me wherever I want. And I think in particular, I am looking forward to trying like working with Xcode and like building apps for the Vision Pro while wearing the Vision Pro. It just feels really cool. And then uh, and then I can also place like another window with like documentation up in the corner and like my to-do list behind me. And I think, uh, yeah, it's, it just feels like a, a cool way of like working, working with different, with different apps and yeah, especially with Xcode. Uh, all right, let's pull back to the 10,000 foot view. Um, it's uh, the end of 2023. Apple is now a trillion dollar company. And they've got multiple platforms and all sorts of interests. But the three of you pay for your shoes making apps for their hardware. Uh, from your vantage point, how is Apple doing? And I want to hear where you think they're excelling and where they could do a little better. Uh, why don't we go first, David? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think broadly, I'm I'm pretty happy with where things are as a being an Apple developer. I think it certainly is something that I comes and goes in, in waves for how positive I feel about, you know, doing this. Do I feel like Apple is being responsive to things that are important to us? Or, you know, do I feel like we're being left behind? And I would say recently, it has been a period where, especially on the way that Apple treats developers, that I feel like there has been a willingness within Apple to experiment with new ways to do outreach, to do experiment with, you know, it's trying out different things. These like what you were, uh, Melon was saying about doing the, like ask the expert sessions or trying different m modes and things in ways that makes my life better. And they seem responsive and interested in trying to make my life better. Um, and that ultimately makes me able to make better products, which I think is ultimately, you know, fundamentally what Apple wants is for their developers to make their platforms shine. And if they give me better tools, I'm better able to do that. And I would say broadly that, that I feel good about that. I feel much more that I have the sense that there are many people inside of Apple and the developer relations team there who are genuinely and who are generally trying to make my life better and are not just wanting that but they're actually empowered and able to make changes and improve things to do that uh, you know like the new way that wgc is structured has been super productive and really helpful and i'm glad that they were willing to try that to stick with it to kind of experiment and just push boundaries in a way that rather than just saying we're just going to keep doing this that way because that's the way we've always done it um, and i appreciate that responsiveness and you know there's certainly areas that um I would, you know, I look forward to them improving in terms of, and I think a lot of those are just come down to communication and the way in which they communicate to us, which I think they're getting better at, but I'm not sure I'm ever, you know, it, it, that's the area where there's the greatest opportunity for improvement is just being able to, the more that they're able to communicate with us about their plans, how best we can make, uh, you know, apps for their platforms, that, that, that just ultimately is always a, a beneficial thing. Yeah, I, I believe, you know, I maybe I've just met the best Apple employees, but they're all so sincere. And I feel like that really, to me, goes a long way. But uh, what, what about you, Ken? What do you think? How's Apple doing? I think Apple's doing great. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, being um, building new platforms, uh, revitalizing existing platforms, particularly the Mac over the last, you know, few years with the Apple Silicon transition, that uh, and introducing new platforms like the Vision Pro, um, the, these are all things that, of course, I want to see from the 
the company that makes the platforms that I develop software for, and that it, it broadens the opportunities for um, for people to uh, for us to build things and for people to use those things. And so uh, that's exciting to me, and it's it's also exciting to me or or important to me that Apple has stayed grounded with values like believing that privacy is a fundamental human right. And uh, that so often, I think, uh, it, you know, if the platform were successful, but it was compromising an important value like that, I think uh, I would really have mixed feelings about whether I wanted to develop for it. Uh, and so it's, um, I really appreciate that aspect of Apple. What do you think of the narrative that people say, well, because they're so obsessed with privacy, they're actually falling behind? Well, I guess it could be falling behind in the set of people that don't respect privacy. <laughs> I don't know what uh, what exactly they. Uh, the, I guess the concern is that they might be falling behind in training AI, for example, because they could use a bunch of information that they could glean from us, whether we thought that was a good idea or not. Um, I, I'm glad that uh, that Apple prefers walking a different path, and I feel like they're not really. They're they're following a different path, but I don't wouldn't say that it's a falling behind path. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then as for what they could be doing better, because they are moving so fast and on so many fronts, I do think it's easy for things like their documentation to uh, to be left behind and, and be catching up. And I think Apple has gotten better at it, and they're continuing to get better at it. But I look forward to um, <laughs> to when it does get a chance to catch up with how fast they're moving. Yeah, just let's say let's take a break on new platforms for a few years here. Let us catch up, right? <laughs> how about you, Malin? What would you like to see them improve, and uh, you know how are they doing? Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of like how they're doing and the positive, I think I I echo both uh, Dave's and Ken's uh, sort of perspective. I think they are like there's a lot more lot new things coming out, and I think they are really um, working on communicating like WWDC has been really good there's like especially things with like Swift UI being frequent being developed and more and more features coming out I think um, it's great to see how much is being provided um, and the same with things like um, widgets and intents and, and then we also got like weather kit coming out quite recently like there's new things coming out uh, which is which I think is great and you can really see continuous development uh, each year I do think in terms of like Related to continuous development, I think the fact that things are moving fast, especially like Swift UI and on the framework side, I think that means that some things will be uh, like a little bit bumpy now and then. I think um, we saw things for Swift UI, for example, changing between like certain just behaviors changing between 16.0, 16.1, 16.2 in the <laughs> navigation flow. And those were sort of almost like breaking changes, like things that had quite a significant impact on a lot of apps. And things are better, things are stable now. And uh, But I do think like being able to get a bit more communication of those things um, throughout the process, um, I think Apple is writing writing quite a lot of like release notes in each Xcode version, in each beta version. But I do think there are some things that are just sort of not being communicated there. Um, or if there is a bug, uh, like going back to radars um, and going back to things like weather kit this summer, WeatherKit was falling over a lot <laughs> during the summer, and there wasn't really communication of like what the status is. There were status pages, but they were all sort of <laughs> saying that everything is working. Um, so I think like just a, sort of like a bit more communication there, I think would just help people know what to do themselves. So 
I think it's quite helpful to know if there is a bug coming up and you know that Apple is aware of it. I can sort of help prioritize, that can help me prioritize if I should fix, if I should find a workaround or if I can wait for Apple to come out with their fix. But I think often there's sort of a, uh, I have to make a decision whether or not I should wait for a feedback to be sort of looked at or if I should find my own workaround. Um, and often finding a feedback does take some time. And I'm not like, I would say I, I, like everyone encourages you to file feedback and I encourage people to file feedback. But like I often like spend that time having my adding my own work around rather than filing the feedback. So I do think um, communication would just help there for you to as a sort of developer to be able to know what to prioritize, um, especially when we are getting new cool things so quickly. Yeah, I mean, communication sounds like a theme, you know, something that that, that uh, they need to work on. And But I'll tell you one thing, the three of you have been excellent communicators. Uh, you have stayed longer than we asked, and we've got some great, um, great um, discussion today. I feel like I really appreciate you coming. I know all three of you are very busy with all the stuff you're working on. Uh, but it's so nice once a year to kind of share the developer story with the audience and I really appreciate the three of you coming in today. Um, Steven, you've got something to share with us. Yeah, that's right. If you go over to giverelay.com, you'll see that we are running our annual membership sale. Uh, that is 20% off any yearly plan uh, to any of our shows here on Relay FM. A bunch of our shows, including uh, Mac Power Users, we offer an ad-free longer version of the show each and every week. So you can uh, sign up, giverelay.com. Com. You can use it more than once. You can gift it to yourself, gift it to somebody else. Uh, all the information is over there. And that runs through December 15th. So if you're not a member or you're looking to expand your membership with us, now's a great time to do it. Yeah, I, I am told that if your significant other has trouble sleeping, my voice is, is often a good way <laughs> to help with that. Uh, before we uh, sign off, I just wanted to go around and uh, if the three of you could share uh, any links or places people can contact you or where they should go. Uh, Malin, where should people go if they want to learn more about what you're up to? Um, yeah, if you if you want to get in touch with me, you can either reach out on Mastodon. Um, I'm Malin at Mastodon.social or you can find me on Twitter. It's um, just Malin Sundberg. Uh, mostly Mastodon. Uh, but uh, yeah, if and then I think in terms of like finding if you're interested in looking at what I've been doing, uh, Mercury Weather uh, is the latest app uh, I've been focusing on. And then Time in Orbit as well, if you're looking for a time tracking app. I want to apologize because I started the show calling you Malin. And I feel like by the end, I went just full American to Malin. <laughs> I'm not sure when that happened. And I just realized I've been doing that. But please accept my apology. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it's. You're not the first one. That's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. That was a progression for me. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> uh, David, how about you? Uh, if you? The best place is probably david-smith.org. There's links to everything I do there. Um, and if you are interested in my uh, fortnightly perspectives on uh, on developing, I do a podcast on Relay called Under the Radar with Marco Arment, where we talk about the you know all of these kind of topics that we're talking about here on a very regular basis. So if this has been interesting to you, then I can uh, commend that to you. And, and Ken? You'll find our team's work over at omnigroup.com. And uh, you can find me personally on Mastodon as well at kksitmastodon.social. Well, I, again, I just want to thank the three of you. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes of the year. As a host, I'll tell you, it's really hard to do a show with three guests and not have uh, car accident um, uh, communications. 
You guys have been amazing. I just, uh, I want to thank you for your patience as we put this together and, and thank you to the audience for, uh, for listening to a podcast with five people on it. I know that's not easy, but I think, I think we did a pretty good job for you this year. I want to thank our sponsors as well. One password, text expander, Squarespace, and Tailscale. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. You can also sign up for more PU there. That's the extended ad-free version if you're interested. Uh, Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.